Welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, August 11th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up, Passport Backlog. I'll chat with Virginia Senator Mark Warner about what Congress is trying to do to break the months-long logjam. The Supreme Court and government regulations. CBN's Jennifer Wishon joins me for more on her story. An update on the 2024 Republican primary field and the debate coming up. The Pentagon's military buildup in the Persian Gulf and the latest on Donald Trump's legal woes, all coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. Just a reminder, though, to please tell a friend or family member about the DC Debrief. Help them put it into their phones if you have to. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, pretty much wherever you can get your podcasts, that's where you will find us. And if you would leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review there, too, if you get a chance, it will help the podcast grow. All right. With that out of the way, let's get to the debrief for this week. Trump legal woes continue. A grand jury in Georgia is scheduled to meet next week as the district attorney in that case is expected to present the findings of her election interference investigation. Fannie Willis has been investigating Trump's alleged attempts to get state officials and lawmakers to find extra votes that would allow him to win the state's 2020 electoral votes. Unlike the three indictments previous, however, all all those were federal indictments. A fourth indictment here in Georgia would be at the state level, which means that were Trump to be found guilty months down the line, he would not be able to pardon himself if he were to be convicted and were to be elected president in the meantime. It appears all but certain the Georgia grand jury will indict the former president on at least a dozen charges, according to different reports, including conspiracy and racketeering. The inquiry in Georgia focused on five things that happened in that state in the weeks after the election, and they include calls that Mr. Trump made to pressure local officials, including a January 2nd, 2021 call to Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, during which Trump said he wanted him he wanted Raffensperger to, quote, find nearly 12,000 votes or enough to reverse his loss. And of course, uh, there's audio that's been played a million times out there of Trump having this phone conversation with Raffensperger and others. Miss Willis's office also scrutinized a plan by Trump allies to create a slate of bogus electors for Trump in Georgia, even though Biden's victory had been certified several times by the state's Republican leadership. The office is also investigating har- a harassment of local election workers by Trump supporters, as well as what the prosecution is likely to say are lies about ballot fraud that were advanced by Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal lawyer at the time, and other allies during legislative hearings after the election. Now, this will all come, likely come, as Trump's legal team is slated to meet later today in a D.C. courtroom with special counsel Jack Smith's lawyers for a hearing over what Trump should be and will be allowed to say and what kinds of materials he'll be allowed to make public in the January 6th indictment. Prosecutors believe Trump is trying to intimidate witnesses with truth social media posts and hinting at retribution to any potential witnesses that may testify against him, and they want to restrict what evidence Trump can make public during the discovery process. Trump has argued the prosecution's attempts to limit what he can say violates his right to free political speech. 
It's unclear when Judge Tanya Chutkin, an Obama appointee hearing the case, will make her ruling. Trump has also asked that a skiff be recreated at his residence, which we assume to be Mar-a-Lago, though it could also be Bedminster, so his legal team doesn't have to travel to D.C. to view the classified documents that will be shared by the prosecution during the discovery process, and that's for um, the classified documents indictment. And we also found out that special counsel Jack Smith got a search warrant for Donald Trump's Twitter account from Elon Musk back in January, which is a very, very interesting um, development because it just goes to show that the special counsel is looking in areas that we may not be thinking of, and it makes one wonder where else he's looking for information. But um, a lot of news going on with Trump and these three indictments and the potential for uh, a series of indictments in a fourth matter in Georgia coming up next week. At least it looks like uh, the prosecutor is going to uh, present her case to the grand jury, and then we will see if and when a grand jury decides to hand down indictments of the the former president. 2024 presidential scorecard. It appears as if the GOP presidential field is all but locked in for the first debate. CBN News political analyst David Brody with more on who's in and who's out. Come August 23rd, all eyes will be on Milwaukee, the scene of the GOP's first debate. So far, eight candidates have qualified. Former President Trump, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, and most recently, former Vice President Mike Pence. A big question remains, though, whether the clear frontrunner will even show up. The latest New York Times-Siena poll shows Donald Trump crushing each opponent across almost every demographic group. One of his challengers, Nikki Haley, told CBN News she understands why he may not show up. It's his decision to make. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, he probably sees that it would do him more harm to get on a debate stage than not. Give po folks like you and others oxygen? Well, I think that, you know, it, at the numbers he has now, why would he go get on a debate stage and, and risk that? But A Trump vacancy could be a needed opportunity for Ron DeSantis, currently polling second. While he's struggling to gain traction, the candidate polling the highest will be placed center stage, and that means DeSantis would have prime placement if Trump skips. Then there are the rest hoping for a breakthrough moment. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Doug Burgum, and Vivek Ramaswamy, who has seen his poll numbers rise recently, possibly due to his vocal defense of Trump during his legal trouble. As for the wild card, look no further than Chris Christie, otherwise known as the Trump wrecking ball. While he would likely remain the main attack dog against the former president, the question is whether it will stick against Trump's Teflon nature. And we are on the ground in Iowa this weekend for the Iowa Soapbox and the Iowa State Fair events, where most of the GOP candidates will be attending and speaking, including Donald Trump. He'll be at the Soapbox event on Saturday. Our White House correspondent Abigail Robertson is there and will be filing on all of those stories for us over the weekend. And uh, we will have more on what happened in Iowa this weekend uh, next week here on the DC Debrief. July inflation. After a year of monthly declines, the year-over-year -year inflation rate 
has risen from 3% to 3.2%, still well above the Federal Reserve's target of 2%, according to the Labor Bureau's latest Consumer Index report. To get a better sense of where inflation is headed, though, the Fed looks to core inflation, which measures the price of all goods and services, but excludes Food and energy prices, which are seen as much more volatile, they, they tend to go up and down and fluctuate uh, a lot more rapidly month to month. Core inflation was better, continued to cool by two-tenths of a percent, the same as it did in June, and that's after six months of increases closer to four-tenths of a percent. Now, one of the big increases and one of the big reasons why the consumer price index went up was a big jump in energy prices. Gas prices have surged nearly 30 cents over the last month to a national average of 3.83 a gallon, according to AAA. You probably have seen it as you're driving around town. All of a sudden, there's a couple of gas stations in the Northern Virginia area that are creeping up over $4 a gallon. Though the increase in the annual CPI rate picked up for the first time in 13 months, one also has to understand that was because it was calculated from a lower base after prices subsided last July following a jump that had boosted inflation to a pace not seen in more than 40 years. So instead of comparing now this year's number to a 9% number, we're going to start comparing the numbers we have right now to smaller numbers because you hit that 9% number and then it started to come down a little bit and level off. And so it's going to be very difficult to get back to that 2% number because if you're looking at year over year inflation, it's a lot easier for those to see big drastic decreases when the numbers were so high 12 months ago. As the numbers 12 months ago begin to tick down, you're going to maybe see uh, the CPI uh, move up and down a little bit in, instead of having the steady decreases that, that we have seen. Interest rates are expected to remain near 4% through 2024 based on the Fed's median projections. So that means things like credit card interest and auto loans won't be getting any cheaper just yet. So if you're planning to borrow money this year or next year, maybe for it's a home loan or a new car, uh, I would not be expecting the Fed to dramatically cut back interest rates to 2 or 3%. They're likely to stay the course. Although uh, when we talked to Mark Hamrick a couple weeks ago, it did sound as if the Fed's last rate hike last month might be their last for a little while. Despite chronic concerns about higher labor costs, one of the closely watched measures of wages and salaries, the Labor Department's Employment Cost Index, grew more slowly from April through June. If you strip out government jobs, employee pay rose 1%, which is less than the 1.2% increase in the first three months of 2023. Now, you know, people, maybe it doesn't sound as great that uh, employee pay didn't go up as high last month as it did previous months. But uh, when uh, when employment cost index, when, when employees continue to make higher and higher salary from an economic standpoint, businesses usually pass that cost along to the consumer, which means higher prices. So if the amount of money that they're paying employees is coming down, that also can mean that prices may start to come down as well. For an inflationary, from an inflationary standpoint, that can be seen as good news. Uh, Sam Bullard is a senior economist at Wells Fargo in Charlotte, North Carolina. He said, uh, while headline inflation has made quick work of getting back to low single digits, the year-over-year pace is likely to get stuck around 3% through the end of this year, which is what I was saying just a minute ago. So kind of a mixed bag with inflation, but it seems like this might be the flavor of inflation for the next year or so. Persian Gulf 
buildup. More than 3,000 U.S. Marines arrived in the Middle East this week with the goal of keeping Iran from intercepting merchant ships in the Strait of Hormuz, part of a growing U.S. presence in the Persian Gulf. CBN News' national security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on that. Thousands of Marines backed by U.S. fighter jets and warships are deploying to the Persian Gulf, a display of military might that's long overdue, according to Nathan Sales, former ambassador-at-large and coordinator for counterterrorism in the Trump administration. What Iran has seen so far from the administration is one after another episodes of turning the other cheek. That's a great way to live your life as a, as a private citizen and as a Christian. That's not a great way to run foreign policy. The latest slap involves the regime increasing its pattern of harassing and seizing ships traveling through the Strait of Hormuz, the waterway that more than 20% of the world's oil must pass through. With Iran now closer than ever to weapons-grade uranium levels, the Biden administration has finally admitted efforts to revive a nuclear deal are done, and that option is no longer on the table. Gabriel Nerona, former State Department Special Advisor for Iran, says the administration is still offering Iran concessions, giving the regime an impression that it holds the leverage in nuclear negotiations. The State Department is still trying to negotiate something where they uh, give sanctions relief to Iran in exchange for Iran uh, pausing its enrichment or, or doing a little bit less there. Since the beginning of the year, we've also seen an increase in joint military exercises between the U.S. and Israel. Narona and Ambassador Sales believe this sends a message of unity and support to allies in the region. In response to the military buildup in the Persian Gulf, Iran has basically told the U.S. to mind its own business. White House labor advisor steps down. Over the last few months, we've seen major strikes averted by railway workers and UPS drivers. Meanwhile, Hollywood actors and writers have been on strike for the better part of a month. And auto worker unions said last month they are preparing to strike unless Detroit's big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis, agree to new contracts. As this is all happening... President Biden's top labor advisor, Celeste Drake, has stepped down to take a labor organizing job in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, estimates from national labor unions show more than 650,000 U.S. workers either were on strike or threatened to strike during the first half of this year. Uh, unionized labor in America has been very active in the first six months of this year, uh, and, and it continues to be so. So uh, strikes obviously have a big impact on you and me, which is why it was so important for the sake of the economy that UPS and the railway workers avoided a damaging strike that could have uh, had implications for the economy that would have affected all of us. Uh, but it's also a potential political risk. As Biden travels the country right now to talk about Bidenomics and tout his uh, what he feels are positive indicators in the economy. Any major strike this fall will certainly hurt Biden's claims that the economy is on the right path. And so it is an interesting time for Celeste Drake to leave the White House, and it remains to be seen who will take her place as the president's top labor advisor. Supreme Court guns ruling. The Supreme Court on Tuesday agreed to freeze a lower court order that bars the government from regulating so-called ghost guns. Those are untraceable homemade weapons as firearms under federal law. This order grants the Biden administration's request to allow the regulations to remain in effect while legal challenges play out in other lower courts. So, 
the Supreme Court siding with the Biden administration here on this one. Uh, ghost guns, for those of you who don't know, they are kits that a user can buy online to assemble a fully functional firearm on their own at home. They don't have any serial numbers. They don't require anybody to get background checks on them, and they provide no transfer records that are easy to trace. And critics say they are tra- they're attractive to people who are not allowed legally to buy firearms. The vote on this was five to four. Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh would have denied the application, but uh, you had uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Chief Justice John Roberts join uh, the liberal justices in this five to four decision. All right, now with with that out of the way, let's get into our first deep dive of the week. One of the issues not being talked about all that much, but one that's having a significant impact for every American who wants to travel overseas, passports, the backlog and wait to get passports updated or renewed now spanning months, sometimes eight to 12 months, preventing people from attending weddings overseas, family vacations, just wrecking plans all over the place. One of the many bipartisan members of Congress trying to take this on is Democratic Virginia Senator Mark Warner, and he joins me now on the DC Debrief to talk about this. Senator Warner, I know this is one of the issues you care a lot about because you've been talking a lot about it. People simply can't get their passports approved in anything less than half a year. How bad is the problem right now with regard to this backlog? It's pretty bad. I mean, I've got friends, I've even had a family member, you know, that sent in their passport renewal application, for example, in the spring, and it got to be midsummer and they still hadn't gotten and heard anything. Um, You know, it used to take roughly eight to 10 weeks for a renewal or a new application. And if you wanted to pay an expedited fee, you could get it in two to four weeks. We now see those timelines stretching to eight or nine weeks with even the expedited and 11 to 13 weeks on a new application. And how we ended up here, John, is is really three things happened at once. One is, you know, under the previous administration, there was a series of hiring freezes that didn't allow the passport office to grow its personnel. And, you know, to work at the passport office as a full-time employee, you've actually got to do a security check because you're looking at people's personal birth and other information, citizenship papers. Second is, during COVID, um, a lot of people didn't travel, obviously, and we went from about 22 million applications a year to about 11 million. During that period, the couple of years where people didn't travel, people didn't renew their passports. They had a new child. They didn't get the child a passport. And now, what third item is that COVID's passed us, everybody wants to travel, and we've gone from 22 million new and renewal applications to 11 million to this year, 25 million. So the perfect storm of people wanting to travel, the downturn during COVID, and the hiring freezes that didn't allow new people to be brought on has created a a real challenge. Now, the folks who are working at the passport office, they're doing their darndest. They're, They're working weekends, they're working nights, Um, It will get better. I think we've gotten through the worst of the bulge. I've encouraged the passport office to put more people on the phone lines. You don't have to have a lot of training for that. So we've got Virginians waiting two or three hours to just get an answer. Um, We also have people saying, I, you know, I need to travel right away. And you sometimes get sent to a passport office that would have an opening, maybe all the way across the country. That's crazy, but there's nothing over the next 30 to 60 days that we can do to kind of 
alleviate that because the, the backlog is so great. We've got to get back, and I think you will by the, you know, by around Christmas time, they'll have a couple of things happen. We'll gotten through the backlog. There will be um, a new online system where you could renew at least your passport online. We will hopefully get back to the steady state where you can actually go into the passport office without an appointment if you've got an emergency and get something happened uh, expedited basis. But in the interim, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, the good news is we've I've pushed them to up the number of hours. They've opened up weekend hours for folks calling in to get an appointment. My office has got a pretty good hit rate. We've helped about 95% of the people who've, who've had a problem. Um, but if, if you're, you know, now in late July and you're saying, gosh, I want to take a trip to Europe in, in August, if you haven't got your passports current, uh, you could have an issue. And one thing I think that's, that's really important to remember as well that I don't think people uh, fully appreciate it is if your passport is within six months of expiring, certain countries will not allow you to go in because they feel like you might then stay longer than that six months. So you not only have to have a current passport, you've got to have a passport that actually is not going to expire within six months. So people really need to be planning things out long term and getting those applications in now. What are the obstacles for the State Department to hire enough people to get this logjam moving? In many ways, the fees pay for this operation. So they just need to make sure that in our authorization bill, they're allowed to hire more folks, number one. Number two, in the short-term emergency, we need to push the call centers that they use, that if anybody's had one of these problems and you, you've literally spent hours trying to get an appointment on how you can get in a passport on an expedited basis, you know, they got to put more people there. Those are not, you know, those are not jobs that require a security clearance. And I, they have promised me they're going to up that and we're going to stay on them to make sure those hours of call availability uh, increase. Third is you got to, you know, check your passport and don't wait until you're ready to leave for the airport. The number of times when my office gets called and when literally somebody's on the way to the airport, uh, sometimes we're able to help, um, but you got to plan ahead. And, and four, I do think as the new online system comes back into existence. They had it as an experiment for a while. I think they've gotten gotten rid of part of the bugs. And that online system should make it easier if you want to renew your passport. You're still going to have to go in the first time because you got to prove your citizenship. But if you're already, uh, you know, have got a passport, your citizenship has been proven, at least the renewals will start to be able to do online. They won't have that up and operating, though, until early, early 24. Senator, how much of your call load coming in from your constituents is dealing with helping people with passports? We spend enormous amount of time helping people with passports, pe helping with people with visas, dealing with if you got a problem with Medicare or Social Security. You know, we used to run a couple hundred passport requests a year. Already we're about 1,700. So we've had almost a tenfold increase uh, in 2023, and we're not even all the way through the whole year. Um, it's been a challenge. And again, we can, we've been able to help. And if somebody's got an immediate problem, if you, in particularly cases where you've, you know, you got a wedding planned or God forbid somebody has passed away and you need to get to a funeral, our office can help. But the truth is you shouldn't have to go to your United States Center to get your passport a new one or a renewal in a timely fashion. So we got to stay on the State Department, stay on the passport office um, 
to make sure these these systems improve. Well, Senator, fingers crossed, obviously, that things will get better here soon on the passport backlog. Senator Warner, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, John. Well, one of the things we try to do on these deep dives is focus on issues that could affect every American. And this is a story you likely won't see or hear about anywhere else. The Supreme Court is going to be taking up a case in the fall on a rule that could have huge implications into the power that federal bureaucracies have, known as the Chevron rule. Joining me to talk about her story on this is CBN News reporter Jennifer Wishon. Jennifer, can you explain what the Chevron rule is and why it's so important. So the Chevron rule, um, which sometimes when people hear things like this, they can glaze over. But as you say, it is it is something that could affect potentially all Americans um, if it if it hasn't already. Um, so this is a rule that uh, the Supreme Court came up with that says whenever a federal agency um, creates a rule based on legislation passed by Congress and it's challenged by a citizen, that the court is going to unless there's a a particular reason why they should do otherwise, very specifically, then they're going to side on this on, they're going to take the government side every time. And, um, you know, we, we, CBN has done a lot of reporting on federal regulations. No one knows how many there are. There are hundreds of thousands. There have been efforts to count them. And the people who tried to take this on just give up eventually because there are just so many. You may remember uh, when President Trump was was president, one of the things he did that was quite popular was he said, "Okay, for every new federal regulation, we're going to take away two federal regulations because there are just so many on the books that literally regulate everything from the length of a dog leash that you can have on federal lands to um, the amount of check that you can write. You can't write write a check for, um, I think it's like a penny, um, which no one really is going to do that, right? But do we really need the government to tell us that we can't do that? Um, so this is, this is a huge part of the American legal landscape. Um, these rules that are created by um, federal agencies, these are unelected bureaucrats, and here's this rule that the Supreme Court has has given um, other courts to implement that says, look, unless there's a specific reason why you should side with the citizen, you're just going to always err on the side of the government. It kind of gives them the edge going into um, legal litigation over one of these rules. Got it. So I know the start of your story begins by detailing the specific court case of some commercial fishermen who are suing the government, and it has to do with this Chevron rule. Can you just talk briefly about what their story is and, and how it applies to the Chevron rule? Yeah, there's so, so you know, these commercial fishermen, um, for a, quite a while, they've been uncomfortable with this rule that allows government monitors to board their vessels to observe the fish they catch. And, um, you know, the fishermen say, look, if that wasn't bad enough, the National Marine Fisheries Service passed a rule that now requires them to pay the wages of those monitors taking a seat on their boats. Now, for some of these big, big commercial fishermen, fisher, you know, fisher out, uh, fishermen outfits, um, it, it may not be such a big deal, but for these smaller um, um, vessels that you know, maybe they only have 10 seats on their boat. Maybe they only have five seats. And all of those represent people paying to come, you know, out on the boat to go fishing for the day. 
um, that's a big deal because this these daily wages can add up to about seven hundred dollars a day. Think about that. That is a lot of money that yeah. these fishermen potentially have to to pay, and it really cuts into their their bottom line. So a group of herring fishermen from Cape May, New Jersey sued over the rule and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which again, on its, on its own is very burdensome, burdensome, burdensome for, um, for citizens to have to find, you know, good appellate lawyers and, and take it through the process. It's very time consuming and expensive. Um, but the Supreme Court is going to hear their case, but specifically they're going to take on the Chevron doctrine. They're going to specifically look at the Chevron doctrine and see whether or not the Supreme Court still thinks this is a good idea. And this is important and, and, and kind of momentous because not only because of, you know, we talked about how many regulations there are that affect Americans, but also because this is a Supreme Court precedent and the Supreme Court, you know, it's a big deal when they look back and say, mm, I think we got that wrong or mm, we need to tweak that. So there are a lot of eyes on this case. So you spoke with someone from the Center for Progressive Reform who believes the Chevron rule should remain in place. What is their rationale? What is their argument for maintaining the status quo? Yeah, John, um, James Goodwin at the Center for Progressive Reform makes a really interesting point. He says, look, if you take the Chevron doctrine away then you're setting up the potential for chaos in this part of the law because um, you now have judges all across the country that can you know make their own interpretation of what the law is um, because this is this is what it's all about right you have Congress who passes a law and you have the agencies that interpret it and and and, and do the rulemaking based on the law and now you could potentially have the judicial branch coming in and without Chevron, then they could be interpreting what Congress meant or, you know, what is OK under the law that Congress passed. And so Goodwin is, is arguing that you could have judicial activism taking place um, on, on both sides of the spectrum if you allow this to happen, if you take away this rule that now lower courts have to look to. Um, and he says, look, this is like, if you're a sports fan and John, I know you are, that if you, yes. this, is like, <laughs> this is like bringing in a baseball umpire to, you know, figure out whether or not, um, something was a reception. And we know, you know, if you're a football fan there, it's a very fine, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like very we, fine line between what's a catch and what's not anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so, so that's his argument that, you know, you could be just opening a whole new can of worms and bringing in you know, even more interpretations. And so you could have one rule that's challenged in Texas, let's say, and you could have the exact same rule that's challenged in Connecticut. And you could have two different outcomes based on whoever is hearing the case and whatever that judge determines um, should be the interpretation. So he says this could just, he said, this is absolutely no way to govern if we allow Chevron to be taken out of the system. Right. So it's a preference um, of letting the federal bureaucracy who they think or they believe has more knowledge of what, whatever that regulation is that they're talking about. They are in a better position to to decide and figure out exactly what is meant by that regulation than a, a judge someplace who may not be an expert in that area and maybe just trying to interpret what it is that they're seeing. Exactly. 
Okay. So um, you also spoke with someone um, from uh, the Heritage Foundation. And um, obviously, uh, it seems as though uh, most folks on the conservative side would like to see this rule done away with or changed. What is the argument, the conservative argument for scrapping this altogether? I think you may have hit on it a little bit, but what did they have to say? Yeah. So yeah, I, I spoke to uh, Jack Fitzhenry and, and he says, and he this is the argument that many conservatives make, um, that basically federal agencies need to be put back into their constitutional box. <laughs> um, so that is basically, you know, they're there to give expert advice, as you said, because there are, you know, certainly, you know, when you have, um, you know, members of Congress they they don't they cannot be experts in everything that they're legislating and so you have the federal agencies who are experts um but that it's it's not their job to be the shadow government alongside elected officials and um and so his point is that they basically just need to be put back into the context that they were created to be in which is to offer um expert advice but not to create policy that affects you know, millions of, of Americans every day. And that is something that just is, is, is maddening to, to so many conservatives that you have basically what many call a shadow government. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no accountability. You know, if you try to call a federal agency as a citizen um, because you're concerned about the way that a, a regulation is affecting you on your land or, uh, you know, that affects your property or your livelihood, you know, there is really no incentive for someone to get back with you immediately, even though it is a very vital and immediate problem for you. You know, conversely, if you call your congressperson, you know, they are accountable to you. You can vote for them Mm -hmm. or against them. You can campaign against them. You can run against them if you want, but you don't have that same recourse with a federal agency. And, um, and so that's, that's the issue. And that's why, you know, um, a lot of people say Chevron should be um, at the very least restructured because if there's going to be, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a tipping point, uh, many people think that it should tip towards the citizen and not towards the federal mm-hmm. government. Right. 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 Like if there's a tie goes to the runner, the the, the tie should go towards the citizen rather than the government agency. But it seems as though that conservatives don't wouldn't like the idea of local judges interpreting things any more than maybe folks on the left would. So it's is is it are you telling me that they would prefer that Congress would adjudicate these different kinds of things? Yes, they would prefer that Congress be more specific about um, the laws that they're passing. And, 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 you know, that's the thing. Um, Congress has found even, even conservatives who say, you know, they don't like the administrative state. It is also a very um, convenient tool for Congress to use because they can pass, you know, with, with a, with a, especially with gridlock in Congress, they can pass a law that is pretty vague and hand it over to the agency and say, you take care of the rest. And then when an agency makes a rule that ends up hurting citizens, Congress can say, well, we didn't do that. We didn't right. pass that language. Our hands are clean. It's the it's the evil administrative state. Right. Gotcha. Um, and yeah. Yeah. So so the hope is that if, if Chevron was taken away, that Congress would, you know, step up and um, do a better job <laughs> right. at lawmaking. But, you know, 
The question yeah. remains, would that happen? Well, it's interesting that it seems like the Supreme Court wants to address the larger issues. So many times they will only make a ruling on the specific case in front of them. They're reluctant to go any further than that. But because this is a rule that they themselves put in place, it sounds as though they want to address this and that there there could be a range of outcomes that we see coming out of this case when it's ultimately decided. But I know at least one conservative justice likes the Chevron rule. Am I reading that right? That's right. That's right. Um, The late Justice Antonin Scalia actually was a huge fan of Chevron. And, you know, actually, John, when this was passed um, back in the 80s, it was it was a a, it came out of a, a case that was regulating power plants. And this was a unanimous decision. And I think it has been um, kind of just it, it, it's taken on a life of its own that maybe, it, you know, justices didn't see at the time. But um, Justice Scalia, you know, as you say, just a, a lion in, in conservative circles and just very well respected. He really liked Chevron and he thought it was important because, um, you know, outside of the, the 10th D.C. Circuit, which hears a lot of administrative law cases, you know, courts across the country may hear a few a year. And so he felt like they needed to have a precedent and a test and a rule to go to every time for consistency so that they weren't kind of scrambling and trying to figure out how they should should deal with this. Because just like members of Congress um, and, and legislators generally, you have judges like we just discussed that, you know, they're not experts in it in say environmental law or, you know, whatever it is that's before them that day. And so Scalia thought it was important that they have a test, interestingly. Well, it's very interesting that the Supreme Court will hear this case uh, in their next term, and uh, it's likely we will get a, a, a ruling from them in the term after that. So we're not likely to see this uh, Chevron rule changed immediately, but um, certainly a case we'll be watching uh, when the next Supreme Court term rolls around. And you can see Jennifer's excellent story on this at, at CBNnews.com. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. And now it's time for the closer. Most of us have a little bit of the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence to us, right? And we have that mentality every once in a while, whether it's you know somebody else's house, somebody else has got a new car. Uh, when I was a kid and I collected baseball cards, I certainly was jealous. It's a jealousy, jealous of what other, you know, other kids had. And a new Gallup poll shows that is very much the case when it comes to leaders. In short, Americans tend to like what other countries have more than our own leaders. A new Gallup poll showed that Republicans and Democrats have a more favorable opinion of Prince William and Ukrainian President Zelensky than any American leader. So what Gallup did is they they compared the the amount of people who had a favorable opinion of these different leaders compared to people who had an unfavorable opinion. And the gap is what we're going to be looking at here, the difference between favorable, unfavorable. Prince William has a 37% favorable over unfavorable gap. That's the highest of all the leaders asked about. So uh, 37%, 37% more Americans are, uh, have a favorable opinion of Prince William than have an unfavorable. A, a very, very large gap. Ukrainian President Zelensky was second with a 28% net positive favorable opinion. Chief Justice John Roberts was third at 13%, with First Lady Jill Biden at 11%, and King Charles III at 9%. In a rare show of bipartisan agreement, both Prince Williams and King Charles III were favored by both parties. 65% of Republicans and 63% 
percent of Democrats like Prince William, half of Republicans and just under half of Democrats, 49 percent like King Charles, half of all Republicans like Zelensky, but three quarters of Democrats like him, a gap that reflects the growing resistance to aid to Ukraine. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries was at zero percent. So essentially, uh, people responding to his name were as as much favorable as unfavorable, although a lot of respondents didn't know who he was. A little more than a third of those people who were asked about Hakeem Jeffries said they didn't know who he was. He was the most unknown of anyone in the poll. Justice Clarence Thomas and Attorney General Merrick Garland were at negative 3% favorability. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at negative 7%. Donald Trump, Vice President Kamala Harris, and President Biden all around the same mark, with 14% holding a more unfavorable to favorable view of Trump. It was negative 15% for Kamala Harris and negative 16% for Biden. Former Vice President Mike Pence is at negative 17%, but by far the least popular leader, Russian President Vladimir Putin, with a net negative approval rating of negative 85%. Not surprising, uh, but still just a kind of a shocking number to see the gap between uh, where he was and the next closest person to him. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Please make sure to tell a friend or family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief.